This is not the media. This is hell. We have a right to protest, a right to assemble, a right to free speech, a right to air our grievances, to organize, to mobilize, to take to the streets, rally, and march, to voice our unhappiness with whatever issue bothers us individually or collectively. So if we have that right, how does protest become a crime? How can you be arrested for something that in an alleged democracy, you have every right to do. And who can protest, or how can protest become criminalized? What does it take for the state and prosecutors to determine that an act of protest is not an act of protest, but a criminal act, even a terrorist act? How does protest become equated with terrorism? Yeah, we got a lot of questions for today's guests, who we'll be talking to in a few minutes. Writer lawyer and activist Caroline Turvent is author of When Protest Becomes Crime Politics and Law and Liberal Democracies She's also the author of the 2014 book NGOs Under Pressure in Partial Democracies Caroline has worked as Senior Legal Advisor at the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights in Berlin. Find out more about Caroline at carolineturvent.wordpress.com and follow her on Twitter at C underscore Turvent, T-E-R-W-I-N-D-T. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks for all your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to either Alex or myself, Alex at thisishell.com, Chuck at thisishell.com. We will we need your answers in by the end of tomorrow's Thursday's show when we will be announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, this week Jeff asks, What color is your smoke? What color is your smoke? Alex will have some of your answers, some more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and it's time for listener feedback. Adam, who had our favorite answer to the question from hell a couple of weeks ago when we asked, what is the system called that you would like to see happen? Adam responded with, horny Theocracy and one of This Is Hell Gray on Black medical face mask, which you can also see right now by going to thisishell.com when you click on support. Adam writes, would you ask Jeff Dorchin if he knows about anything in L.A. for when there's when we're not in the middle of a pandemic that's along the lines of the Think and Drink in Chicago? The Think and Drink is our weekly Friday gathering at the bar downstairs. Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon, a weekly gathering that has been suspended due to the global pandemic. That is novel coronavirus. And I really don't know if they're going to have anything quite like the Think and Drink out in L.A. because there's nothing quite like the Think and Drink at Carrie's Lounge. Adam continues, I listen to the show while out carrying the mail. 
You have the best tasting guests. It's a highlight of my day. Thanks, Adam. I bet you would be surprised. It probably as surprised as I was to find out how many mail carriers actually listen to This Is Hell. I think Adam's like the fourth or fifth mail carrier to contact us saying they listen while carrying mail. Apparently, mail carriers listen to a lot of podcasts. So maybe the next time you're looking for a tip on a podcast, ask your mail carrier. Adam concludes, Alex, don't let Chuck give you crap about donating to Bernie Sanders. Yes, Chuck, Bernie's a fool to dream of power within a corrupt neoliberal party. And yes, he's too big a wuss to be anti-militarist or anti-imperialist, but for real. I know it's hellish, but he's so much better than basically everyone else in office at the national level. Give Alex a break. I... I have no problem with people giving money to Bernie. It's just that when I hear someone has donated to a person who's running for office as a Democrat, I fear that money, well, Bernie never sees it. It just goes directly to the DNC, the kind of bait and switch many Bernie supporters were complaining about after Bernie dropped out. But, Adam, you are correct. Bernie is much better than basically everyone else in office at the national level. Also, when I showed this email to my girlie, she confessed to donating to Bernie as well, so... There's that, and I don't feel like sleeping on the couch. I had that one coming, let's be honest. (laughs) In the clear light of day a couple months later, uh, yeah, I got that one coming. (laughs) Daphne, who has joined us during the Friday Think and Drink in the past, writes, Hi, Chuck. I wonder, has any of the stomach ache solutions that people have offered you on the show had a good impact? Which ones have you tried and liked? Did you ever come across an Ayurveda doctor office in on Devon Avenue. I imagine there would be one. I wonder if the people from the vegetarian restaurants would know of one instead of looking for one on the internet, which would be for, well, people who look like you or me, but also filtered through the lens of capital, capitalism, wellness, you know, white people. I cure my sad days with chocolate and vinegar Pringles and like instant coffee because it makes me nostalgic. So I have no business giving people advice on stomach aches. Thanks for asking, Daphne. My stomach is somewhat better. Drinking a lot more water, avoiding processed foods, stuff that's high in sugar and dairy, eating more fibers, so better. But there's always calm before the storm. Daphne then tells us, I learned about your show when I was moving here as I was Googling interviews with the late, great David Graber. It was 2018, and I was listening to the BS Jobs interview, I think, and you said something about WNUR in Evanston, and I was like, what? That's her writing. His writings and thoughts have such clarity and really can make people look in a different direction and a different angle. What a loss. Poor Nika Dubrovsky, David's wife. Daphne then responds to a question we asked our listeners, which was, should we have politicians on the show? Daphne responds, I think some ideas are tested and created empirically, and if there are politicians testing leftist ideas on the ground, I don't see why you couldn't interview them, especially if they can carry a conversation about ideas above their specific alignments and disagreements with other politicians. Take care, Daphne. Daphne, I think there were only a couple listeners who said they actually wanted to hear politicians on the show. The vast, vast majority said they wanted us to stay Within our rule, that's more a guideline than anything else. Nobody from big business or big politics. Apparently, listeners get enough of those types in the establishment media. That said, it's likely the good politicians are being ignored. Again, a guideline and not a rule, but a guideline that many of our listeners apparently appreciate. 
Jamie wants us to get a past guest back on the show. Jamie writes, Thea Ria Francos has a new book out, Resource Radicals from Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. And I think she could represent a, or she could present a very useful antidote to Guillaume Long and CEPR's simplistic and self-serving version of Ecuadorian President Rafael Correa's socialism, which you featured on episode 1212, as well as the response from indigenous and peasant communities and movements and the construction of a post-extractive and climate-positive reality. She could also give a really important update on the upshot of the popular revolts that were engulfing many South American countries pre-pandemic and how the pandemic has hit those movements and how they are responding. Yeah, here we are asking if we should have politicians on the show. And then we have the former foreign minister of Rafael Correa's government in Ecuador on. While I certainly had issues with with what Guillaume said, I did enjoy getting his perspective because the situation in Ecuador and the U.S. role in ending the Korea government is something that is not being discussed anywhere else, which is always our goal. Talk about stuff that nobody else is talking about. That said, it probably would have been best for us to get someone else who wasn't as clearly biased when it comes to a perspective from a government. Jamie continues, I have to tell you how much I enjoy This Is Hell, your interviews and dry sense of humor help me understand and deal with the late capitalist apocalypse we are surfing into and help keep at bay the terror and grief that keep welling up from the darker recesses of my mind and that cannot be exercised by cute animal videos and or heavy metal music. Respect. Jamie. I'd like to be at Jamie's house where he flips between heavy metal music and cute cat videos, or watches cute cat videos while listening to heavy metal music. Probably drowns out all the cute purring, though, so what's the point in watching the cute cat videos? Jamie, thanks for disagreeing with a guest's point of view and not blaming us for their point of view. Far too often we find people who didn't like a guest we had on the show, never actually listened to that interview or even listened to our show at any time, and then tell us we're evil for having such a person on air without ever considering what they actually said during our interview. Jamie, that deserves respect, and we are very happy to have you as a listener. Also, we're trying to get Thea back on the show to discuss her new book. She was on in May of 2019, I believe it was, to talk about her articles, Path to Democratic Socialism Means a Path to Climate Justice, which was at In These Times, and a Descent Magazine article, What Comes After Extractivism. You can find that interview by searching on Rhea Francos at our website, thisishell.com. Jamie then got back to, in touch with us to say that Wade Davis interview was spectacular. If I counted correctly, Chuck got in a grand total of three questions in 45 minutes. The man is a real performer. I assume he's referring to Wade Davis, not me, because I didn't do much performing during that. Wade is a real performer, but to be honest, his virus essay is less interesting than his Magdalena River Reflections. That's Wade's new book, Magdalena River of Dreams. But we booked Wade to talk COVID-19 because a lot of listeners were sharing and praising his writing on the pandemic. Jamie adds, in Magdalena, as an anthropologist, Wade talks about the reciprocal relationship between indigenous people 
peoples there and the natural order of the world. But unlike your past guest Bathsheba DeMuth, who was on our show back in August of 2019 to talk about her book, Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait, Wade doesn't make this implicit critique of capitalism and commodification into an explicit condemnation of alienation and dispossession, nor does he make the connection that environmental destruction and biodiversity also means genocide for people who are so clearly linked to their ecosystems in every dimension of their existence. Economic, spiritual, intellectual, and cultural. Guess we have to make those links for ourselves. Yeah, everyone's telling me they really enjoyed the Wade Davis interview, maybe despite the fact that I only asked three questions in 45 minutes. Maybe because I only asked three (laughs) questions in... 45 minutes. I'm not sure. Either way, listeners were happy, so that's good enough for me, except all I had to do was five minutes of research for those three questions, not the seven actual hours I spent researching Wade and his writing. (sighs) Jessica also suggested, uh, sorry, Jessica, who suggested we interview Dr. Anthony Fauci a couple weeks ago, because apparently Dr. Fauci is willing to do anybody's show. She sent thanks for the list of questions from hell I would ask Dr. Fauci that I mentioned on the show. Jessica then sent what she calls a serious recommendation, and that's to interview the author of Fermentation as Metaphor, which is written by fermentation revivalist Sandor Alex Katz. According to the publisher's page, describing the book in Fermentation as Metaphor, stemming from his personal obsession with all things fermented, Katz mediates, or sorry, meditates on his art and work, drawing connections between microbial communities and aspects of human culture, politics, religion, social and cultural movements, art, music, sexuality, identity, and even our individual thoughts and feelings. He informs his arguments with his vast knowledge of the fermentation process, which he describes as a slow, gentle, steady, yet unstoppable force for change. So that definitely fits into our goal of discussing stuff nobody else is. I mean, due to the pandemic, people are canning, but that's far from considering fermentation as metaphor. Katz is also author of the 2012 book, The Art of Fermentation, an in-depth exploration of essential concepts and processes from around the world which my girlie gave to her sister eight years ago when it was published and her sister raved about it. It's a small world. And thanks for the heads up, Jessica. Fred also sent us a guest suggestion, writing disturbing article here on power, environment, and colonialism. And though I don't know too much about him, Chris Hedges might be an interesting interview. I searched his name on your website and nothing came up. Cheers, Fred. Uh, The Chris Hedges article Fred shared is titled How Corporate Tyranny Works. Those like environmental lawyer Stephen Donzinger, who fight the corporate control of our society on behalf of the vulnerable, find that institutions of power unite to crucify them. You can find that article at SheerPost.com, as in Robert Shear, another past guest here on the show. Actually, Fred, Chris has been on the show probably eight, ten, maybe a dozen times. It's just that he has not been on since 2015, which is when our currently available online archives begin. Everything else from 1996 through 2014 will hopefully be online soon. And if you want to support that effort, if any of you want to, 
either sign up as a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell and receive our weekly Friday Patreon only podcast with a new monologue from me and a past interview that is not currently available online, as well as a special discount for all our merchandise. You can also just go to this is hell.com and click on support. And Fred, because you mentioned him, we're going to dig through the archives this afternoon and find an old Chris Hedges interview for this week's Patreon podcast. Last week on Patreon, we shared our 2014 talk with sociologist James Lowen on sundown towns. That is, those are towns that had laws on the books to discriminate against people of color, but especially targeting black citizens. And I did a media analysis last week of the official NRA magazine, America's First Freedom, and found that the NRA, National Enquirer, and Fox News have very, very similar editorial and news content. This week, I'll be going back up north to small-town America to get reports on the Trump boat parade and share some truly radical thinking that's coming out of the woods. But you can only hear that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. That's listener feedback. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Alex at thisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio, message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. By the way, we also got a, a very, very, very special package in the mail, and we'll tell you all about that on tomorrow's show. If you want to send us anything, anything in the mail, send it to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 606. Five, nine. Coming up on This Is Hell, How Does Protest Become a Crime? More of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly... And sadly, Gnome's gone insane. This is hell. When does an act of protest become a crime? How does a protester suddenly become labeled a terrorist? How can an entire protest movement be equated with a terrorist act or organization? If, like it is here in the U.S., protest is legally protected and a right how can you be arrested for protesting? Here to help us understand how protest gets criminalized, Caroline Turvent is a writer, lawyer, and activist, and author of When Protest Becomes Crime, Politics, and Law in Liberal Democracies. Welcome to This Is Hell, Caroline. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for having me. This is a really, really interesting book because I think it brings up an aspect of protest as crime and the power of prosecutors that people don't generally think about. You start by writing about uh, how after a demonstration, a street demonstration in 1992 in the city of Bilbao in Spain, Yulin and his brother threw a Molotov cocktail into the offices of Spain's national train company. It was a time of widespread calabaruca in the Basque country, the territory claimed as homeland by the Basque people who straddle modern state borders in the north of Spain and southwest of France. This Basque language term, which translates roughly to street struggle, was widely used in Spain to refer to actions in which Basque youth aired their political frustrations in the streets by destroying cash machines, throwing stones at party offices, or smashing the windows of agencies for temporary employment, and explaining their decision to throw the Molotov cocktail. Yulin cited the brothers' anger at the disproportionate use 
use of force by police earlier that day against participants in a public demonstration by the Basque left nationalist movement, a group in favor of an independent and socialist Basque country. How much is it allowed to bring up that disproportionate use of force by police as a motivating factor for your potential crimes that you committed later on. Can you bring that up as a motivation? And it does that work as a motivation for a legitimizing protest? So for that particular case, we really need to look at the, the time in which that occurred. Um, in 1975, in Spain, uh, Franco died, the dictator until then. And that was the time that ETA, uh, um, terrorist outfit, was, was active and actually enjoyed quite some legitimacy during the Franco regime um, for opposing the dictatorship. And then with the return to democracy, um, the, the terrorist organization ETA continued its, its armed struggle and it legitimized it um, by criticizing that there was not a real democracy. And throughout um, the 1980s and until now, there has been a very strong left independentist movement uh, in, in the Basque country, um, striving for independence, striving for a referendum, striving for the ability to, to govern themselves. And it's in that context that um, many times youth would, would go to the street and engage in, in the acts that you described, like um, smashing cash machines. And throughout the entire 1980s, um, that was prosecuted as, as public disorder and property damage. And then in 1992, for the first time, um, a special court from Madrid intervened and said that, no, this is not just property damage. This occurred um, in order to further the goals of the terrorist organization ETA. So Yulen and his brother were alleged to have collaborated with ETA and therefore it was a terrorist crime. So their motivation of being upset with excessive police violence during a demonstration um, and the very fact that um, they were engaging uh, in or after that demonstration, which belonged to a left independentist um, a demonstration, immediately linked it to um, the goal that ETA also set for itself, namely uh, a nationalist and socialist Basque country. So what changed? I don't mean what technically changed. What was Was it public opinion that changed? Was it the government that changed? Did the did the public finally just get tired of the protests and the violence? Did the government decide to become more of a law and order state? What changed in 1992 to make what was legal protest beforehand a criminal act afterwards? A number of things changed. Um, and First of all, that is that um, throughout the 1980s and then even more throughout the 1990s and 2000s, the legitimacy of the armed struggle uh, was increasingly questioned within the Basque country. So there was less, uh, less social support. Then also in 1992, there was an important police operation against the, um, basically the heads of, of ETA and the, the leading investigative judge at that time, Baltasar uh, Garzon um, in Madrid, he had given the orders to the police to collect all documents um, at such operations. Um, he wanted to study 
the the organization of ETA far more fundamentally. And he has written a number of books about it, um, in which he he explains that he then realized that um, he he started to criticize the way in which prosecutors dealt with, with ETA before, um, which was to view ETA as a military organization, and that. Um, Therefore, the prosecutors had always focused on prosecuting only the military uh, commandos that would put bombs, uh, basically. And he said that by reading the, the documentation of ETA itself, he realized how much more a political organization ETA is, and that you should view basically the entire Basque leftist independentist movement as fulfilling functions within what he then came to call the ETA network, El Entramado de ETA. And by viewing ETA as a network, having different functions, um, they also started to reconceptualize uh, street struggle as one of the functions within ETA's philosophy of the armed struggle. And that would, be, for example, be that um, while the armed struggle would sometimes be more intense and sometimes be less intense, that during less intense moments, street struggle would um, keep up basically the pressure uh, within the Basque country uh, towards change. Um, so that is how Prosecutor Baltasar uh, Garzón started to formulate um, this street struggle. And there was another theory that was found within the documentation of ETA, which was about different types of struggle. So there would be the armed struggle, there would be the street struggle, um, and there would be the, 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 the political struggle, the struggle of persuasion. Um, and within that the, the street struggle then became basically a terrorist offense. Um, and throughout the 1990s, defense lawyers have been trying to, to dispute this, um, this categorization. But in the end, that is how it came to be prosecuted standardly um, as, as a terrorist offense, which um, drastically increased the, the kind of sentence that the convicts would get. So how, I, I, I apologize for the wording of this, but how bad was ETA for protests in Spain? Are they held responsible by those on the left for, in essence, criminalizing many of the left's actions? Not at all. Um, the left nationalists um, would not blame ETA for this. Um, they blame the, the prosecutors and the few um, that then came to be established through court proceedings um, that what they would argue is that, yes, there is an armed struggle, but what we do is separate and that should not be conflated in the courts. You write about uh, this trend continuing, and by the end of the 1990s, it had become routine to quali qualify acts of Cali Barocca, that, again, that's the protest action for Basque independence as terrorism, with such cases automatically going to the national court. A new law in 2000 cemented this development by turning material destruction into a terrorist crime, even if the perpetrator did not belong to an armed organization, as long as it was done with the goal to subvert the Constitution or change the public peace? First of all, before I even ask the question that I've written down right here, how often are these kinds of laws written in such a vague way that they could be applied in, in almost universally? I'd say quite often. I haven't done a systematic um, comparison of uh, terrorism legislation in many countries, um, but from what I've seen uh, also in, in Chile, um, it's quite vague, and also in the United States, um, 
there is the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, um, which also has wording that can include um, a huge spectrum of, of actions. So is, in your opinion, by definition, is vandalism, is property destruction terrorism? Is it, is it meant to incite terror in the population, or is that too broad of a, a definition of terrorism, in your opinion? I think that's definitely too, too, too broad. Um, terrorism, um, this has, I mean, this, this would be my opinion, but this has also been recognized a number of times by judges, also in the countries that I've studied for my book. Um, there has been, um, in each of the situations that I've studied, um, in Chile, for example, I've looked at the criminalization of the protests by the indigenous people. And in the United States, I've looked at the criminalization of animal rights um, protesters and environmentalist activists. And the use of the terrorism label has always been a contentious issue. And the criminalization of property destruction as terrorism has always been a contentious issue. And just to make certain, uh, I understand, did uh, protesting for Basque independence, did that become a terrorist act? Can even peaceful protesting be seen as terrorist collaboration? Yes. So this depends on the theory that the prosecutors develop in Spain, um, which hinges on the notion that you can fulfill a function within the strategy developed by ETA. And because ETA is also putting bombs. You do not necessarily yourself need to be involved directly in the putting of bombs. Um, it can be sufficient, for example, that you are a member of the prisoner support organization that, for example, arranges um, for family members uh, to reach their um, their family member that is incarcerated um, or that um, arranges the, the legal support for uh, incarcerated um, ETA members and in the end um, so the, the theory would be that such organization a prisoner support organization for example would fulfill a function within ETA's uh, strategy for example by um, keeping the morale of the prisoners high um, recruiting new ETA members and in the end, what the prosecutors did in trials is they said, I now only have to prove that you're a member of this prisoner support organization. And because the prisoner support organization plays a, a function within ETA strategy, therefore you belong to the ETA network and therefore you belong to a terrorist organization. We are speaking with writer, lawyer, and activist Caroline Turvent, author of When Protest Becomes Crime, Politics and Law in Liberal Democracies. You can find out about more about Caroline at carolineturvent.wordpress.com, and you can follow Caroline on Twitter at C underscore Turvent, that's T-E-R-W-I-N-D-T. Your book focuses on, as you write, the key role, the prosecutorial narrative, the official accusation and explanation of what makes certain conduct a crime delivered in court by a prosecutor tasked with the authority and responsibility of representing the public interest, plays in reproducing and legitimizing certain societal views while marginalizing others. By choosing to describe conduct in a particular manner in the courtroom, prosecutors can enable changes in the way conduct is defined judicially with significant impact on criminal prosecution and sentencing. Do prosecutors then define what is legal protest and what is not? And if so, how many limitations can prosecutors impose on protest? 
So <clears throat> the perspective that my book takes is that um, usually what prosecutors tell in the courtroom is taken as very simple facts, uh, a simple factual story. And what I realized is that actually the prosecutor is very much engaged in the creation of a narrative. And what narrative that becomes, uh, becomes the topic of contestation. Many groups in society start to try to influence that prosecutorial narrative, because once you can influence the prosecutorial narrative, you can also influence who gets prosecuted for what and um, for what gravity of, of crime. So I've, uh, I've realized that um, there's groups that very strategically um, claim that they are victims of certain crimes and they start framing those, those crimes in a certain way. And once they are able to basically convince the prosecutors that that is the right way to approach an issue, um, the prosecutors are adopting that narrative. And what my book does is it shows the different competing narratives that you can tell about a certain action. And um, let me give an example. For example, the, um, the release of animals like mink from mink farms in the United States. The activists call it animal liberation because they believe that minks should not be um, commodified. And the mink started to organize. Um, they started to link up with each other and they started to link up with what they called other animal enterprises. And they started to reframe this act of releasing, not as property destruction, but as, as terrorism. And in the end, that is what caught on. Um, the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act was, was enacted and there were prosecutions of activists on that basis. And you write that in 1979, animal rights activists for the first time broke into a lab in order to release caged animals. In 1980, as you point out, radical environmentalist group Earth First, which we've featured on our show in the past, was founded, a group that engaged in tree sit-ins and uh, came up with wilderness proposals for long-time protest actions like the release of animals from fur farms or testing laboratories were not a priority for U.S. law enforcement. In 1998, the department of the FBI, Louis Free, the director of that uh, department, said that Eco and animal rights terrorism was not an issue, not a priority, and not on the agency's radar screen. Fur farmers were outraged by the lack of attention to the activist raids they experienced, so they mobilized and lobbied the FBI for more protection. Just seven years later, on August 24, 2005, a top official declared the eco-terrorism animal rights movement to be the number one domestic terrorism threat in the U.S., Last week, we were speaking with a former FBI agent, Mike German, who recently wrote the report Hidden in Plain Sight about white supremacist infiltration into U.S. law enforcement. While at the FBI, Mike went undercover inside white supremacist groups. He told us that at the time of the FBI saying eco-terrorism was the number one terror threat to the U.S., the FBI was fully aware that the real most dangerous threat was white supremacy. Mike said this was all due to the politicization of the FBI following 9-11 when the agency ignored the growing threat of white supremacist terrorism and focused on foreign, namely Muslim suspects of terrorism. How new is the politicization of law enforcement and justice when it comes to acting as if protest is a crime? When it comes to the criminalization of protest. Mike was saying this began in the United States with 9-11. Does it take major events like that to change the way that protest is viewed? 
I don't think so. And I would actually disagree um, that it would have started with 9-11. I think the organizing um, of the animal enterprises started way before. Um, the Animal Enterprise Protection Act was enacted in the 1990s. Um, so, no, I don't think it's related to a big event like 9-11. Like and um, I think the comparison that I draw between Chile, Spain and the United States that all have established liberal democracies actually shows that um, once there is a very fundamental political conflict um, that is not resolved in, in parliament, that is not resolved through um, sort of the ordinary mechanisms um, of, of democracy, then groups start to get, get frustrated. Um, like the indigenous people in Chile, they are waiting for the return of their lands uh, from which they were forcibly removed in the end of the 19th century. And they've been promised that return after dictator Pinochet was removed in 1989 um, in Chile. And the process is extremely slow. And basically what the Chilean state is telling them, well, you should wait. And for some, that's just not enough. They feel that they're not being prioritized. Um, there are new legislative pr proposals um, for hydroelectric dams, for example, that again violate their rights as indigenous people. So they started to do symbolic actions. Um, they would enter a piece of land that they disputed, um, do a ceremony there, leave again. Um, that would be peaceful. Um, but it was perceived as a huge threat by the established landowners, the commercial landowners. So the commercial landowners in Chile started to mobilize and to frame themselves as the victims of a criminal organization. So the indigenous organization that was organizing these symbolic protests was indeed prosecuted as a criminal organization. So it's that kind of um, organizing by groups in society to influence the prosecutor narrative that I've described. Um, and that shows that prosecutor narrative is not something that um, is entirely objective. It's not something that necessarily represents the public interest. Um, and that we should look at what particularistic interests are behind it when a prosecutor adopts a certain, uh, a certain narrative and which narratives are marginalized by the prosecutor institutionalizing a narrative by bringing it to court. So the prosecutor is not equally influenced by both sides in any case. How can you have that kind of, how does this kind of, I don't know, lobbying of uh, prosecutors work? Who has the most influence on prosecutors? So it would be easy to say that it's always the most powerful elite in society that automatically have that influence. Um, and I would say, no, that's not true. My research has shown that it's very well possible for groups that do not necessarily count to a country's elite to also gain traction over the prosecutorial narrative. Um, Chile in this, uh, is, a, is a case in point. The indigenous movement, the Mapuche movement, has been very successful in um, getting allies, international allies, the Special Rapporteur for Indigenous Rights, for example. Um, they went to the Inter-American Court for Human Rights um, that basically backed their claims and um, criticized Chile for the way in which it was handling the prosecutions against its indigenous people. So it's about becoming a strong movement, um, finding allies uh, that have certain traction, 
Um, it's about creating a narrative that is convincing. Um, and you can see that some groups have been better at that than others. And some groups have been very successful over time. To what extent do prosecutors accurately represent popular opinion about uh, protests or actions or social unrest? Can the media play a role in criminalizing protest? The media always plays a role, um, especially when looking at uh, criminal prosecutions from a narrative perspective. So looking at prosecutions from the perspective that is always about a translation from some reality out there to a certain um, a certain narrative that involves certain choices, choices for which defendant, which act, um, which context uh, is chosen as, as relevant. Um, I would say that for prosecutors, um, the, the situations that I looked at are conflicts, are deep political conflicts, conflicts about sovereignty in Spain, um, about autonomy and land rights in Chile, about animal rights uh, in the United States. And um, those go to the core, basically, um, of, um, of a liberal democracy. And once there is such a conflict, there is not one public interest. So for a prosecutor tasked with representing the public interest, that of course is a challenge. And situations that I described um, make the challenge even higher because there are groups that have explicitly said they're not going to respect the monopoly force. They don't see the democracy as a legitimate democracy. Um, they explicitly say they're taking justice in their own hands. And this comes both from the protesters, but also from the targets of protesters. So in Chile, for example, there have been foundations of paramilitary groups, of landowners that have said, we feel unprotected by the Chilean state, so we take justice in our own hands. And that then also has as a con consequence that, for example, when a protest has a lot of sympathizers, the people that are being prosecuted and decide to go fugitive, they get a lot of support in society. Um, people refuse to be witnesses for the prosecution. Um, so that makes the task for the prosecution to find the evidence, um, to find uh, the defendants that they're looking for, um, to make their prosecution be legitimate and be viewed as legitimate, very hard. So it's that um, situation where prosecutors risk basically escalation if they prosecute, but also risk escalation if they don't, that I've looked at and tried to describe how prosecutors balance these competing interests, these criticisms from both sides that are being both too lax and too uh, repressive, how they deal with that and how they use their prosecutorial narrative to legitimize their prosecution, to legitimize why they seek out certain defendants, why they criminalize, for example, a terrorist organization, and with whom in society they are actually communicating to obtain the consent from society for that prosecution. The, you write that the processes of contentious criminalization analyzed in your book are not unique to the chosen countries of Spain, Chile, and the United States. These are the three examples that you show for criminalizing protests. For example, similar developments have also characterized prosecutorial narratives in Germany against left-wing militants of Rote Army Fraction and their supporters in the 1970s and 80s. Also in the trial of 13 young Muslims in the Netherlands allegedly planning attacks on politicians and constituting a terrorist organization, the prosecutors started the statement by 
setting the case in the context of fear, which had emerged after 9-11. He then spoke at length about the differences between an acceptable moderate Islam and a problematic radical Islam. In order to prove the terrorist objective of the defendants, the defense lawyers called the prosecution a witch hunt and criticized the criminalization of religious thinking, meetings, and conversations in the context, because I want to kind of flesh out this idea of political narrative or uh, prosecutorial narrative a little bit more in the context of 9-11. Why is bringing up those terror attacks in a trial of 13 Muslims who are alleged terrorists, how is that not an objective application of the law, the kind of objective application of the law the prosecutors boast about applying at all times? So basically in liberal legalist prosecutions, the default way to do it is to decontextualize. What prosecutors usually do is they try to eliminate as much context as possible and focus solely on a very short time frame in which a certain defendant did something and that then is the charge. And the main finding in my book is that what happens in these contentious prosecutions is that prosecutors start bringing in a lot of context. So I attended a trial in Chile in 2003 against two Mapuche chiefs of of a community who were alleged to have committed arson in a plantation um, next to their community. And the prosecutor started a trial by telling about the war at the end of the 19th century between the Chilean army and the Mapuche people And then he traced the entire history of the Chileans and the Mapuche people throughout the 20th century. And then he narrated about 400 other arson attacks in the region. And basically he never came to the point to argue that these particular people had actually committed the arson attacks of which they were accused. So the question that I raised then and that led to my entire research was why did the prosecutor do this? Why did he politicize the trial in such a way, whereas at the time already, this was a very hot issue on the front pages of all the newspapers. Um, And it was basically the Mapuches that always were bringing in their Mapuche identity to claim the legitimacy of their actions. But now it was a prosecutor basically telling about there is a Mapuche conflict and who are the Mapuche and who are the Chileans? And by the way, these people on trial, they are not Mapuche. They're abusing their Mapuche identity. So it became a case of identity politics in the courtroom and a history lesson in the courtroom. And um, it is that contextualization that is a politicization that emphasizes a certain narrative that serves certain particularistic interests in society and marginalizes another narrative. And what does it distract potentially a a jury trial from uh, considering? Is this an attempt to obfuscate? Is this an attempt to delegitimize protesters and protest? What are they being distracted from when they have this kind of prosecutorial narrative? So basically what the prosecutor said um, in 2003 is he said it was a very technical way to explain why the arsons were terrorist arsons. Um, So it was his way to explain the motive, the alleged motive of the people on trial. You also write that uh, you have purposely selected these very different cases. Uh, To what degree 
to what degree is it a, is there an exaggeration by prosecutors of how much these uh, groups, how large these groups are, how big the, for instance, ETA is, how big the Mapuche activists is, how big the Huntington Law Science, Life Sciences protests, how, how big those organizations are. We're told by the right here in the U.S. that the current protests that we're seeing over racialized police violence has brought America to its knees. And, and so in what way does is public order or how often is public order exaggerated or uh, the protests against public order exaggerated to undermine protests? I think it happens a lot. Um, and it's part of the prosecutorial narrative trying to legitimize um, its prosecution. What's interesting is that in Chile, for example, um, we also now had access to certain diplomatic cables that were released by WikiLeaks, where the Americans um, were saying about the protests in Chile at the time, that it was an exaggeration, that most of the protest was uh, either peaceful or just limited to property destruction, and that the charges of terrorism were overdrawn. You also write that in the course of a contentious episode, does, does a shift in the prosecutorial narrative occur? And if so, when as a result of which processes and factors, how, what changes in criminal doc- doctrinal uh, devices constitute that change? And what narrative does the prosecutor adapt? This involves understanding what audience prosecutorial narrative addresses, which constituency push this narrative in society, and what alternative narratives are silenced by it. Do prosecutors always target, as their potential audience, public tendencies to support law and order out of a concern for personal safety and security? Do they construct arguments as threats first and foremost to personal individual freedom? Mm. Yes. I mean, in um, both in the United States and in Chile, um, there were vast economic interests at stake. In Chile, the economic interests of forestry plantations um, and in the United States, the, the animal enterprises, such as animal testing companies. And in the prosecutions, both in Chile and in the United States, the prosecutors always focus first on human lives. Um, for example, in, in Chile, that the arson attacks would threaten the lives um, of security guards in the plantations or the firefighters. And in the United States, the prosecutors would also focus uh, entirely on the fear that actions by protesters um, had had created in, in, for example, employees working at these companies, um, as that would then lead to a kind of understanding of, of terrorism that um, would be seen as, as more legitimate than focusing on economic interests, I guess. And you also point out that prosecutors do indeed engage with the narratives proposed by partisan interest groups. They respond to public pressures to obtain convictions and then seek to justify their prosecutions, focusing on those audiences whose approval they deem important. This is not a failure on the part of particular prosecutors, but built into the discursive nature of the application of law and the prevalent belief in liberal democracies that order is established through punishment resulting from criminal prosecutions which must be viewed as legitimate how does 
punishment as criminal justice affect the way in which protests and protesters are perceived and punished by prosecutors? So what the book shows in each of the three episodes is that the political conflict becomes entirely sidelined. So it is as if the entire conflict moves into the criminal justice arena. Um, and within that, the political debate is, is not possible. It's, it's explicitly excluded from the trials. Um, for example, in, in one trial where in the United States where animal rights activists had acted against an animal testing company, they had a lot of grievances against this animal testing company accusing it of animal abuse. And the prosecutor explicitly said, well, that is not what is at, is at issue at this trial here. This is only about the actions of the defendants. Um, similarly, in Chile, in the context of the criminal trials against Mapuche protesters, there is, of course, no space for a debate about whether an economic system based on plantations is what is good for the region where the majority of the Mapuche people live. So this sidelining of political uh, demands of a political um, dialogue that is very, very prevalent. Um, activists get caught up entirely in basically the support of prisoners and, and defendants. It takes up resources, it takes up time. Um, and by framing what's happening in the language of the criminal law, you turn to a very different kind of vocabulary you divide the universe into perpetrators and into victims, which become exclusionary identities. It increases polarization in society when uh, protesters and their sympathizers become all lumped into the category of defendants, whereas the political opponent becomes entirely lumped into the category of victims. So it, um, it can make a political conflict so much more difficult to solve. And basically what's problematic is that many people seem to expect that the criminal justice arena can actually solve the underlying political conflict, but it doesn't. The political conflict will continue to exist and by overlapping it with um, conflicts about criminal justice issues, um, it gets only more, more complex. Uh, That's why your book is absolutely fascinating to me. You write how you are interested in the structure and ideology with which prosecutors and liberal democracies inevitably work, the criminal law system and its ideology of liberal legalism. This system presupposes a functioning liberal democracy, a public, a common public interest and a shared public order that should be defended. So should we not blame prosecutors for protests becoming crime? Should we instead just blame the law? Because, you know, do we really have a functioning liberal democracy? Is there a common public interest in a shared public order that should be defended? It, are the presumptions and assumptions made by about liberal legalism, are they true? So I think this is indeed not about um, seeking one actor to blame, and that would then solve the issue. Um, I definitely think prosecutors are to blame when they um, wholesale adopt a narrative that comes from a very particular interest in society. Um, but it definitely, the entire criminalization of social protest is a process in which many more actors in society participate. Many other different actors in the government um, and basically the entire public. 
One last question for you, Caroline. We have been speaking with writer, activist, and lawyer Caroline Turvent, who is author of When Protest Becomes Crime, Politics, and Law in Liberal Democracies. You can find out more about Caroline at carolineturvent.wordpress.com and follow Caroline on Twitter at C underscore Turvent. That's T-E-R-W-I-N-D-T. One last question for you, and as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. There, uh, There is a lot of concern here in the United States by protesters that the U.S. government, the Trump administration, may get a terrorist organization label placed on Antifa here in the United States. What do you think would happen to the protests against racialized police violence here in the U.S.? With your experience of what you're studied, you studied here in the U.S., what you studied in Chile, what you studied in Spain, what do you think would be the impact on racialized police protests here in the United States if Antifa was turned in, not only criminalized, but turned uh, labeled a terrorist organization? So I should, um, before I answer that, I should put one thing straight. The, the actions that I've looked at in Spain, Chile, and the United States I call them protest because the activists do it with a political demand. I would not say that none of those actions um, are crimes. So when ETA is putting bombs or when um, Mapuche people commit arson, um, I don't have a problem with calling that a crime, um, while at the same time it can be an act of protest. So the point is not that all the narratives of the prosecutors are somehow wrong. It's about seeing that narratives are always choices, that they foreground certain identities, that they foreground certain actions, and that they put them in a certain context so that you understand it in a certain way that then enables a certain criminal categorization. Um, Having said that, criminalizing the Antifa in the United States as terrorists is likely to put it way more on the agenda. I would suspect that many actors within the United States would participate in that public debate about what is terrorism, is what the Antifa does terrorism, and why so? If so, who actually belongs to the groups that are then accused of terrorism? If the Antifa is strong enough to put a counter-narrative in place, that convinces the large majority of Americans, then they can be strengthened um, and then it can put the political interest for which the Antifa stands even more on the agenda. So then it could become a good thing. So there's a silver lining. That's amazing. Go ahead. Yes. And and I would hope that the Antifa is able to do that. I would hope that they're able to to question um, successfully whose interests are being served by this prosecutorial narrative of terrorism. What kind of a public interest lies behind that? And what is the public interest that the Antifa stands for? And maybe many Americans would actually identify with that more. So it's really a struggle about hearts and minds, about identification, about recognition of of public interest, um, and about scrutinizing the narrative for looking at which particularistic interests are behind a narrative that the prosecutor is pretending is a public interest. 
Caroline, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show this morning. This is a fascinating book. Again, our guest has been writer, lawyer, and activist Caroline Turvent, who is author of When Protest Becomes Crime, Politics and Law in Liberal Democracies. If you are somebody who is an activist, who is a protester, this is a book you definitely have to get. And if you're just somebody who is observing from afar, it really gives you an amazing insight into how protest does become crime. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. I always find it funny to be saying bong-hitting journalism right after having an incredibly intense and serious conversation producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have more? Do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from Hell? Oh, yeah. So... What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? Christian H. says, the mistake is not to vote. It's thinking that voting can bring about progress. There are other avenues for actual progress, but they are outside the system. Hmm. John M. says that I can already speak Chinese, so I'll have an advantage. (laughs) Kev S. says, when I agreed to voter fraud, this isn't exactly what I had in mind. What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe (laughs) Biden? Mike M. says, I don't want Trump to throw me in an unmarked van. I want Biden to stuff me into the trunk of his convertible. <laughs> Aaron B says, don't smell me, bro. Claw to us. Uh, Come to on, us. please. No more smelling things. They, they nauseate me. Uh, Garrett S says, Klaatu barada nikto. <laughs> Carissa J says, I was told uh, when they lost me, they picked up three to four suburban Republican votes. Uh, Michael R says, can't wait to get back to normal. Kevin W says, well, America was fun while it lasted. Note, I'm a uh, middle class and white. Your mileage may vary. Uh, Brent R says, I know I said it several times, but after this, I'm putting my foot down. This is the last time I vote for the lesser of two evils. <laughs> Margie says, I'm not doing this. Chris L says, what a bunch of malarkey. Uh, Jesse W says, eh, it probably won't be counted anyways. <laughs> what are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? <laughs> Brian H says, Trump is effing insane. Mark AS says, voting so all those kids can drop Antifa and join Occupy Wall Street again. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, Walter B says, no more crap sandwich posts from centrists. <laughs> Scott S says, sure, Joe, we'll have a big white house with Kamala and ice cream. We can take the train and there'll be all the girls you could ever want to sniff. Pulls God. lever for Howie Hawkins. Uh. Jack W. says, give it the old electoral college try. Sam P. says, crap, I can't uh, wait to still be blamed for not voting for Joe Biden. <laughs> Jack B. says, this isn't a voting booth. It's just the box to place your betting odds choice for the barbed wire cage match between ha- happening this evening between Trump and Biden. Bradley R. says, isn't this how Edgar Allan Poe supposedly died? <laughs> What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? Bradley R. says, Biden is a socialist. (laughs) MGB says, who said I was voting for Biden? Chandler H. says, I'm voting for Joe Biden. (laughs) I like all these ones. Uh, James W. says, I can't wait for the Soros check to come in the mail. (laughs) Leslie P. says, nothing will fundamentally change. Shane M. says, and I, for one, welcome our new hairy-legged overlords. John T. says, I wish more people listened uh, to Jesse instead of James. Jacob J. says, RGB can finally hang up the gavel comforted by the knowledge that McConnell will let Tucker Carlson pick her replacement in four years. (laughs) Uh, A couple more. What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? Aaron D. says, yes, it has really gotten this bad. Fabio L. says, this is hell. Zach N. says, I'm with T-Bone and Corn Pop. Uh, Ladio says, not the worse. Chris, uh, Chris S. says, I'm sure glad my vote doesn't count. Gorilla G. says, sorry, Tara Reed." And Rosario R. says, 
go vote for someone else. Fabio won last week's question from hell. He is overseas, so he asked us to send the gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which he won, to a friend of his in Kentucky, which we have done, Fabio. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell and have a shot at winning the new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which you can see right now by going to This Is Hell and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but you have to have it by the end of tomorrow's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth this week Jeff asks what color is your smoke what color is your smoke Alex who's on tomorrow's Thursday's live show streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time at this is hell.com actually I just booked that so Olafemi Taiwo will be on to talk about his dissent magazine piece climate apartheid is the coming police violence crisis that is the headline that'll grab your eyes tune into tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at this is hell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream not only and not to not only hear our guest but to find out if you've won this week's question from hell i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host chuck Merce, producing alex jerry thanks to alex for producing thanks to our guest caroline uh, Caroline Turvent, and you got to check out that book. It really is amazing. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am white. Yes, I am a dude. But keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, Visit thisishell.com.